tonight to Revelation chapter 2. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us, just uh, lift up your hand and uh, there will be a Bible quickly delivered to your seat. You don't even have to uh, sign up or give away your information. It just they'll bring it right to you. It's a great service, really. So we're taking tonight the third of seven churches that were addressed personally by Jesus Christ as we continue our study in the book of Revelation tonight, the church in Pergamos. Seeking to give a lesson in exactness, a professor at a prestigious medical institution gave to each one of his incoming freshman students a, a beaker full of embalming fluid. And, and as they took that beaker and found their seats, the professor, this doctor, he stood in front of the class and he said, now I want each of you to do exactly as I do. And then he dipped his finger in the embalming fluid and then put it to his mouth and, you know, sucked the fluid off of his finger. And the students that were there watching, knowing what was given to them and seeing what he did, and yet not wanting to ignore the dictate of this doctor or to seem like they didn't care what he was telling them to do, they all quickly obliged to his request and you know, dipped their finger and sucked it off. And, and, and the, the noise in that room, as people gagged and, oh, oh, you know, and, and once all of the, the noise and, and such was settled from that, the doctor, smiling, looked at them again. And he said, now I want you to watch closely and again, do exactly as I do. And then in a more pronounced fashion, he dipped his pointer finger into the embalming fluid but then put his middle finger to his mouth and, and never actually, you know, and, and the whole purpose of this demonstration that he gave to this incoming class of would-be doctors was the importance of exactness. And he said to them, do you see why in this field exactness and precision is a matter of life and death? And it was an excellent illustration because we all understand in the medical field, you don't want some quack doctor that doesn't really know what he's doing or really pay attention to detail. Because when you're dealing with people's lives and people's health, you want to be as precise and exact as possible. Now, the same thing is true in the Christian church. The exactness of the message that we bear this gospel that we preach, this light that we carry as Christians, is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of hell versus heaven, eternal salvation versus eternal separation, and therefore the exactness of the message, the exactness of the doctrine that we carry and profess as Christians is of the utmost importance. The church in Pergamos, as we will see by what Jesus says to them, had compromised in the area of doctrine. They had lost the sharpness of their edge as it concerns the exactness of the message that they carried and even themselves believed. 
Now, when I say that, it may not seem to some of us that that's a very big deal. Okay, well, there was some gray areas, some fuzziness in their doctrine or in their their belief and what they believed theologically or biblically. But the lesson that we learn as we look at what Jesus has to say to this church is that what you believe as a Christian directly affects how you behave as a Christian. And that what you believe is where you begin as you set forth following Christ, seeking to be with Him eternally. But how you behave based on that belief is then what determines where you'll end up. And therefore, what you believe is very important. The doctrine that we preach, that we believe, that we ascribe to, that we understand and meditate on theologically is of the utmost importance to us. If you start off heading in the wrong direction, or if you slowly veer off from that correct direction as you're heading into it, you will be surprised to find out that you don't end up where you were seeking to go at the beginning. If a pilot who is going to fly a plane from San Francisco to Hawaii has an error in his instrumentation and his compass is off just one degree. By the time he flies the 2,091 miles that it takes to get from San Francisco to Hawaii, he'll miss the island by several enough miles that he won't see it as he's looking out. And the airplane will run out of fuel, and not only will they not reach their destination, but they'll crash into the waters below, and they'll all perish. Why? Because there wasn't an exactness in the instrumentation. And in the Christian life, where we've set our feet and our eyes upon the path that's before us, and the doctrine that we believed concerning the salvation and the Savior is of the utmost importance And this church at Pergamos had compromised in this arena of doctrine, and Jesus addresses it in his letter to them. Our destination as Christians is heaven. Our path to get there is the narrow way. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. I love the way John Bunyan puts it in his great work, The Pilgrim's Progress, as he's set forth on this path by evangelists. An evangelist says, see here this narrow way, so narrow that you almost can't see it, and see how it's straight as an arrow? You'll always know this path because it's narrow and it's straight as an arrow. And this is true, this Christian life, this way as we pass through this world on our way to heaven, it's a narrow way. Our destination is heaven. Our path is this narrow way that's laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. And our direction as we walk this narrow way is the doctrine that we're taught and that we understand as we read it in Scripture. And if our doctrine is wrong, then our direction becomes uncertain and our destination becomes cloudy. Doctrine is so important. The spotlight in this letter to the church at Pergamos is their doctrine. That their belief, their teaching was compromised and that that had them in peril. So Jesus speaks to this church and in verse 12 he says, Unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. 
even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Pergamos. In our first of seven studies, of seven letters to seven churches, we looked at Ephesus. That first city that Jesus addressed there. And from there we moved 35 miles north to Smyrna. And then from there now we find ourselves 60 miles north in the city of Pergamos. Now, these were the three royal cities in this section of Asia Minor. Ephesus was the political city. It was the political capital of that part of Asia Minor. Smyrna was the commercial capital. If you remember from last week, the great robust economy that was there because of the myrrh that they exported from it. And then finally, Pergamos, which was the religious center of Asia Minor. So you have these three royal cities, the political, the commercial, and then the religious center of that region. And in Pergamos, that's what we find. There was a great religious center. The cult of the emperor that we talked about last week was very prominent and prevalent there. The Greek pagan mysteries were practiced and sworn by and leaned heavily upon in that city. The great altar of Zeus was erected there. One of the seven wonders of the world that that we still know of today was there in the city of Pergamos. Quite possibly what Jesus is referring to when he talks about Satan's seat. This great altar that was built to this false god, Zeus. Pergamos was also a great intellectual center. They had the largest library in the world at the time. Over 200,000 volumes. It was started by Cleopatra, who then took the whole library and moved it to Egypt, where it became the great Alexandrian library that we know of today. But it started in the city of Pergamos. It was also a great medical center. They had the greatest temple to the medicine god, Asclepius. You know, and worshipped by the image of the serpent on the pole that you still see if you find yourself following an ambulance today. You see that same image, that, that sign of Asclepius, the deity of medicine. And the city itself was a great conglomeration of religion and science and medicine and philosophy. And in the backdrop of all of that, there was a church that was established there. And it was a church that, when it was planted, was intended to influence the culture that it was birthed in. The purpose of that church was to be salt and light in that society and to affect the lives of the people there. But what we find as Jesus addresses this church is that the opposite had happened. 
Rather than the church influencing the culture and the society, the culture and the society was beginning to influence the church. And compromise was being birthed within its structure, the structure of its people. And so Jesus gives them this divine salutation as he greets them. He says, unto the angel of this church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Remember that Jesus, as he greets each church, he gives to them a a picture or a symbol, something that was seen in chapter 1 when John sees the resurrected, glorified Lord. And to this church in Pergamos, he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp sword with the two edges. Now, I've never been to seminary per se. Sometimes I wish I had, and sometimes I'm glad I I haven't. But if you ever do, or if you ever have been there, there's a, a course that you have to take that's called hermeneutics, which basically is a big fancy word that means the rules of proper Bible interpretation. Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. And inside this this philosophy of hermeneutics, there's a principle or a law that's called expositional constancy. And what that basically means is that as you're reading through the Bible or studying through the Bible, you'll discover that there are these common themes or pictures or symbols that just kind of keeps showing up from time to time. The scarlet thread that was initially tied around the ankle of one of the, you know, descendants of Jacob, and then was hung in the window there in Jericho for the, you know, harlot uh, Rahab, you know. And and you kind of see the scarlet thread keep popping up throughout. And something in your mind says, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you because that's not what our Bible study is about. But you see all of these things happening constantly. You see a well, or you see the staff, or you see a nation held up as a symbol, or something in some way, and it just keeps popping up throughout Scripture. But what does it mean? Hermeneutics says that once you discover what that means, it always means the same thing throughout the whole Bible. That it doesn't mean one thing in Genesis, but something completely different in Isaiah. It's God's way of kind of communicating to us or giving us a message or a layer of truth or something so that we can hold on as an anchor to something that's substantial in the scripture. And the two-edged sword is one of those such symbols. It just keeps popping up throughout scripture. We see it there in the book of Judges as Ehud gets a two-edged blade, a two-edged sword, and he goes in and he destroys King Eglon there, you know, who was oppressing the children of Israel. We see it again later on in the Psalms when the psalmist, Psalm 149, verse 6, is, 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 is speaking to the people of God and describing how they worship God. And he says that in their hand they hold a two-edged sword. Three times in the book of Revelation, we see this two-edged sword coming up in chapter 1 here in chapter 2, and again in chapter 19 when Jesus Christ returns. The two-edged sword, it keeps coming up. But the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, there it's revealed to us what this two-edged sword represents. What is it a picture of? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that the word of God is quick and powerful, or living and powerful, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God is the symbol. It's what this two-edged sword signifies and represents. And it belongs to and is a part of Jesus himself. And here Jesus identifies himself to this church in Pergamos as the one who has the two-edged sword, the word of God, the basis and the anchor for all doctrine. Interesting. Now why? Why is it that Jesus uses this symbol to address this church? Or first of all, why is the two-edged sword a symbol of the Bible? I mean, why would God, if he could use anything to signify his word or something to illustrate what it is and what it does, why would it be a two-edged sword? Well, the word of God wounds and the word of God also heals. Just as, you know, a two-edged sword can be used in a a situation of battle to wound and inflict damage. But a two-edged sword could be skillfully placed into the hand of a surgeon and it can be used to save and to heal and to bind up. The scalpel and the sword is one word and the same. It confronts and convicts, but it also comforts and protects. The word of God justifies the sinner on one edge, but on the other it condemns the self-righteous. It brings fear to those that are in front of it, finding themselves against it. But it brings protection to those that are behind it. The two-edged sword has power to destroy but it also has authority to pardon all attributes and aspects of the word of God. It's a very fitting symbol, this two-edged sword. Yet, it goes even deeper. It goes even further. Why? Because John chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that the word, this two-edged sword, the word became flesh. That the word is God and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, though this two-edged sword represents the word, we also see it personified perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. This one who would ride upon a donkey and weep as he went and say, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you as a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you would not. But then that same double-edged savior walks through the temple with the cat of nine tails white knuckles and rage upon his face and he overturns the tables that are there and he cast out those that were selling doves therein and making merchandise of God's people and making his house a den of thieves. This Jesus who would take a young child and set it upon his knee and laugh and, 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 and meet with and relate to a child. But at the same time we see him grabbing Peter with one arm and pulling him up as he was sinking in the waves. We see Jesus in Luke chapter 4 as he made a proclamation of who he was and made a kind of a jab, if you would, a stab at the Jews that were there. And it says that they were going to take him and throw him off a cliff. But as he stood up, he just walked through, walked right through the midst of them and none of them dared lay a hand on him. It's fitting, isn't it, that he's called both the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also the lamb of God. He's the two-edged sword. He's the one who is and was and is to come. We're told that he was a man of sorrows, and yet he himself says that he was a man of great joy. 
But why does Jesus address himself in this way to this particular church? And the answer is because their error and the problem that they had was a careless heed to the word of God. And Jesus is reminding this church that to deny the word is equivalent to denying the Lord. Or to be careless with doctrine is to be careless with Christ because they are one in the same. And it's incredible that Jesus addresses in this letter a doctrinal error and he identifies himself to them in this way, the one who has the two-edged sword, the author, if you would, of this doctrine that we hold, that we teach, that we believe. Remember, belief affects behavior. What you believe is going to reflect how you behave. And if you begin, Christian, to believe wrong, it's only a matter of time before you begin to behave wrong. But before Jesus addresses that error in verse 13, he gives them the positive affirmation. He recognizes as he looks in and examines their church as a whole, as a structure, what is good about them. And in verse 13, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now again, I said already that it's a good possibility that this reference to Satan's seat is pointing to this great altar of Zeus that was there. But more likely, Jesus is talking to them concerning the multitude of pagan practices that were taking place, the the pagan society as a whole in the place that they were situated as a church. What Jesus is saying to them, in, in a sense, as he looks at this church saying, I know your works, he's saying, I understand that where you are situated, where you are planted, it is not an easy place to be a Christian. And you can imagine in the midst of all of what was going on there, all of the pagan deities and practices that went along with those, those, those patterns and worship places, the intellectual hub that it was and all of the ideas and philosophies that were being presented and proliferating you know, in, in that way, that that was hitting them. They were getting hit from that angle. You know, the medical advancements and the, you know, just the, 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 the situation of the culture itself in every way, it was hard on the Christians that were there in that society. It was not an easy place to be a Christian. And Jesus says that by saying, I know where you dwell in the midst of where Satan's seat is, that there is a strong spiritual grip of darkness that's upon that place. And I know the adversity that that brings to those that seek to live godly. It isn't the kind of hardness that Smyrna was facing that was based on persecution and affliction outwardly, but rather the affluence of their society and the indulgence because of their liberality made it a place where it was hard to hold the convictions of Christ. And because of the prominence of paganism and the immoral liberality of society, there was a ceaseless and manifold temptation to sin and to compromise in the lives of the people there. I strongly believe that where we live here in the Northeast, we face a very similar situation to what the church faced there in Pergamos in those days. Anybody who's lived in other parts of the country or, you know, kind of spent time in other places and then you've spent time here, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. 
Especially with us being this close to New York City, you know, and and the hold that's there and how literally everything that kind of goes into our country filters in through that place, be it through the television or be it through the imports or, you know, just the trends that are set. There's so much that happens there and it's almost as though Satan just has his syringe placed right there and he just pumps everything into the country and it comes right from that one root right there that we live so nearby. And it's as though you can almost feel it, you know, living here and when you leave and when you come again. And I I believe that Jesus could say the same thing to this church if he would look at us. He could look at us and he could say, I know where you live, even where Satan's seed is. And being so close to it, we're affected by it in a very real way. I was, when I first got saved, I lived up in Rochester, upstate, 300 miles. And, and, and Rochester, at least as much as I can recollect, I mean, we're going back seven, eight years now, was a very easy place to be a Christian. At the time we were there, we were making a total combined household income of about $14,000 a year. I didn't say it was an easy place to make ends meet. I said it was an easy place to be a Christian, you know. And, and, and it's true. There was, there was always that, that financial stress. But in the midst of that, there was the simplicity in Christ. The churches seemed to be very strong. The Christians relied heavily upon the Lord. There was an openness and a freedom of fellowship. And there was just this very sweet spiritual form of Christianity that we were brought up in there in the Lord. Now, when we moved down here, I didn't know what to expect. Because all I knew, I was born there, I was brought up there, and then I got saved and lived there. So that's all I ever knew. Then I moved down here. After moving down here, you kind of come across the Hudson River and you kind of walk into the sledgehammer of spiritual oppression. I didn't know what to do with that. All of a sudden now, the cost of living doubled. The complications of life doubled. Our family size doubled. You know, everything just seemed to double. Our income also doubled. You know, where God guides, God provides, and so he provided. And, and so there began to be more of an abundance, and it became easier to make ends meet, but it became harder to meet with people. Fellowship cut in half. Bible study became very difficult to make time to get together, to set the priorities of just, I mean, impromptu gatherings, never, they disappeared. There was never a time anymore when you would just, out of the blue, just get together with someone else. There just wasn't time for that because of the stress and the strain of trying to make everything keep going. It just felt like a house of cards and that if each spot wasn't perfectly in its place, the whole collapses and so you've got to do what you've got to do to keep this house of cards going and we we began to understand what it meant to be a Christian in a place that has a spiritual stronghold over it. We felt the pressure of that. It became harder to be a Christian when we moved down here. Now, we used to joke around when we would go home for Christmas or for a visit somewhere. Whenever we would cross the river, the kids, we would all just cross the river and we'd say, bye-bye, Satan, you know. And we we still kind of do that, you know, chuckling and say that because we really could feel it. It was a very real thing to us, just crossing the river. It's like, okay, we're back. Oh, God, help us, you know. And, uh, you know, that, that was just the way it was. Now, the truth of the matter, and this I'm telling you the absolute truth, Christians, is that this is a hard place to be a Christian. Now, I did not say it's a hard place to say you're a Christian. Because there's no place on the planet where it's a hard place to say you're a Christian. 
But this is a hard place to be a Christian. We say, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, listen, to be a Christian, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now, that's a hard thing to do around here. Because if I call my boss and say, hey, boss, the kingdom calls. My boss says, yeah, well, you can call the unemployment office, you know. And it becomes a little bit more challenging because we have responsibilities and things that we have to do. And so it becomes kind of a balancing act, a juggling match of, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do? How do I balance things out? How do I set my priorities so that I'm still doing everything exactly as you've called me and yet holding up my responsibilities and being a witness in a place that's hard to be a Christian? It's a little more challenging. The Bible says that we're to forsake lands and goods and possessions for the kingdom of God's sake. It's easy to say, but it's a much harder thing to do. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. Don't worry. That's hard around here. Because those things are not simple things. They're very complicated. Jesus said, having food and raiment, clothing, let us therewith be content. It's hard to do around here. In such an affluent society when there's so much resource and so many things to vie for our attention and our affections, it's difficult. So it's easy to say, I'm a Christian here, but it is, in truth, a hard thing to be a Christian where we live around here. It's always true that the closer you live to where Satan's seat is in a particular place or area, it will be harder to maintain a no-compromise stance and a solid witness for Christ. But notice here in Jesus' letter to this church that was in that situation, that he doesn't excuse them based upon the difficulty that their area presented them. He acknowledges it. He lays out before them that he knows where it is. But yet he doesn't excuse them and say, ah, I understand that you're living a compromised life and that you're giving in to these gray little doctrinal sins and it's really not a big deal because it's hard there. He doesn't do that. He doesn't pander to it. He recognizes it. But the Bible says very clearly that no one, and that includes you and I, no one is tempted or tested beyond what they can handle. And that you are purposely and strategically placed in this place at this time under these conditions because Jesus wants a witness here and he's called you and I to be a witness in this place, even where Satan's seed is. The Bible also says that to whom much is given, much is required. And to us, each of us here, we can all say, yes, to us, much has been given. And so much will be asked of us and much is because though it's hard to be a Christian here, Yet the word of God demands our faithfulness to our king, to the Christ, for his kingdom's sake and for his glory. We're not excused from it because of the difficulty of the area. And notice that Jesus also even calls this man Antipas to the witness stand. To testify to us the possibility of what it means to live for Christ in a place where wickedness reigns. Look again with me there at verse 13. He says, you, you, you hold my name, and you have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. That this man Antipas, he did it. He laid it all out. He gave a good witness. He didn't give in or buckle under the cultural dictates or what the society was saying. 
but he lived fully for Christ in the midst of great wickedness, and he was put to death for it. And he says to us today, it is possible to live completely for Christ, even when you live in an area where everything is stacked against you, and it's hard to do what he's called you to do. But Jesus is telling them here in verse 13 that he knows the situation there in the city. That he's aware of the challenges and the difficulties that they're facing as they want to be faithful to him. And he commends their faithfulness in the midst of it. And he recognizes those that endure. That those that hold fast to his name. But what are the stumbling blocks? What are the things that a church in that situation fell into What were the sins that Jesus would acknowledge? Now, notice that in each of these letters, when Jesus finishes it, he says, hear what the Spirit says to the church is. He doesn't say, hear what the Spirit says to to you. And these things are laid out for us because they're pertinent, they apply. So what kind of errors and issues can face a church like ours that's so close to where Satan's seat is? Well, the first thing that he says in verse 14 is he says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. Now, that sounds serious. What is the doctrine of Balaam? What is Jesus talking about? In the days after Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and and across the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness, God began to stir up fear in the nations that were surrounding that area, the nations that would eventually be infiltrated and overthrown by God's people as God would subdue and give the land to his people as an inheritance. And the king of Moab, seeing this great multitude and hearing what took place in Egypt and at the Red Sea and to Pharaoh's army, the king of Moab began to become fearful of what would become of him and of his people and of his land. And so he sent messengers unto a Midianite prophet named Balaam. Now, a very mysterious fellow. For all we know, he wasn't a Jew. We don't know exactly what he was, but he dwelt in Midian. So we'll call him a Midianite. And he was a prophet. And he gave prophecies that have come to pass. He was a legitimate prophet of God for all that we know of what he said in Scripture. And so Balak, the king of Moab, sends messengers to Balaam over there in Midian, and, and, he, and he says to him, here's what I want you to do. The children of Israel are like an ox that begins eating on a field until they devour the whole thing. Therefore, I know that you are a prophet of God. I want you to curse Israel. If you curse Israel, they'll be cursed because whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So I want you to curse the children of Israel. And so the Bible tells us that the messengers of Balak went with the wages of divination, that they brought with them great treasures and they came to the house of Balaam and they delivered the message that Balak had. And Balaam said, well, as a prophet of God, I can only say what God puts it in my mouth to say. I can't say anything else other than what God wants me to say. But as he saw the bling, you know, and the gold, the chains that were there and the wages that they had, he he says, but, 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 but wait, because I'm going to go pray about it. I'm going to go see what God says. And so he says, stay here this night. And he goes in and he talks to God and God speaks to Balaam and God says to Balaam, Balaam, what are these men and what are they doing here with you? And, and Balaam says, oh, well, um, you see, I was going to talk to you about that. Um, 
They want me to curse the children of Israel. And they got a lot of money, and they're promising a lot here, you know. And I was wondering, what's your mind on that, God? And God looks at Balaam, and he says, Balaam, these people are not cursed. These people are blessed. And I'm not going to curse the people whom I have set to bless. And so Balaam, the next morning, goes out somewhat disappointed. And he says, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I cannot say anything that God hasn't called me to say. You're going to have to pack sand and head on back over to Moab and deliver the message to Balak. So Balak, being the persistent ruler that he was, you know, the type A control freak, you know, fanatical ruler, he says, no, 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 that's not good enough. Go back, bring more bling, you know, and and get this man to do. Tell him to come back with you so that I can talk to him. So the messengers go back to Balaam the second time. And and Balaam says, listen, haven't I already told you I can't say anything that God hasn't told me to say? But wait, I'm going to go pray again. Just wait right here. And so he goes in and he says, oh, God, they really want me to go, Lord. And, well, Lord, shouldn't I just go? I mean, I won't say anything. that. And God says, you know what, Balaam, go. So Balaam saddles his donkey and he sets out on the way. But the Bible says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Balaam because he went. He knew that it wasn't God's mind for him to go or God's will. And yet there was something drawing him. These wages of unrighteousness, the gold and the silver that was promised to him, that was offered, drew him. So he began to go. But it says that the Lord stood in the way against him. And then as Balaam rode upon his donkey, it came that there was a place where two rock walls came together and the way became more narrow. And it says that the angel of the Lord stood in the passageway with, listen, his sword drawn. The sword of the angel was drawn. And Balaam couldn't see it, but the donkey could. Sometimes donkeys are smarter than men. And so the donkey begins to kind of turn aside and Balaam's pulling it one way on the reins and the donkey's pulling away the other way. And Balaam's getting frustrated because things aren't going according to plan. It's not going the way he hoped or the way he wanted. So he begins to yell at the donkey. You ever yell at your car? I have. <laughs> and he starts yelling at the donkey. Why aren't you doing what, I, what I'm telling you to do? Go. And the donkey kind of is so stubbornly set against not getting killed that he scrapes Balaam's leg against the side of the rock. And Balaam begins to beat the donkey there. And the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey starts talking to Balaam. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? You know, and, and you know, this kind of a thing. Can't you see what's going on over there? You know, and, 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 this, and then finally it says that the Lord opened his eyes and Balaam saw the angel of the Lord there. And the angel of the Lord speaks and says, why are you doing what you know I don't want you to do? And Balaam says, oh, I'm sorry. And he was ashamed and embarrassed because of this thing that he did. And the Lord said, "If if that donkey hadn't stopped, I would have killed you. But then the Lord says, now go. But you don't say anything except what I put in your mouth to say. And so Balaam makes his way and he goes to Balak, the king. And the king of Moab tells Balaam, I want you to curse these people, Israel. And Balaam says, I can't do anything except that which the Lord tells me to do. So Balaam is brought by Balak to a place where he can see the entire encampment of the children of Israel. 
Great study if you ever read Numbers chapter 1 and you look at how they were situated. If you looked at the camp of Israel from a bird's eye view like Balaam was, it was a perfect cross. The number and the way the tribes were situated around the tabernacle, what he saw when he looked down was God's people encamped in the cross. And as he began to prophesy, he brings blessing upon them. Three times... He brings blessing in his prophecy upon Israel. And three times, Balak is incensed that Balaam is not doing according to plan. And Balaam finally says, listen, I told you, even if you gave me all of your house filled with silver and gold, I cannot speak but one word other than what God tells me. Hint, hint, hint. All your house filled with silver and gold. And and I cannot speak one word against the children of Israel. And he, listen, he doesn't. He never says a single word against the children of Israel, nor curses them according to the will of Balak. But do you know what he did? Before he went his way, he said, hey, Balak, come here. You have some very attractive women in Moab. It might do you real well if you send some of those women dressed scantily and looking seductively and send them around some of the Israelite men. Just saying. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. It could be that, well, I mean, God can't bless sin. You don't want him cursed. I can't curse him. I can only say what God wants me to say, but... That's what Jesus means when he says, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. See, he didn't do anything that God didn't tell him to do. But he still got what he wanted and gave Balak what he wanted, or at least so he thought. So what is the doctrine of Balaam as Jesus talks about it to the church in Pergamos? Well, three times Balaam is brought up in the New Testament. And and three different things linked to his name. First of all, the way of Balaam is spoken of in Peter. Second of all, the error of Balaam is spoken of by Jude. And the doctrine of Balaam is spoken of by John here in the book of Revelation. So what is it? What is the way, the error, and the doctrine of Balaam? Well, the way of Balaam, and listen carefully, church, because there's a little bit of Balaam in us. The way of Balaam is to figure out how to get what you want without technically disobeying God to get it. Well, technically, I, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I, I, I didn't really do anything wrong. I didn't really lie, you know. I didn't really, I didn't touch that woman, you know. It's going as far as possible in an act of rebellion without actually technically breaking the will of God. God doesn't really care what I do in one area of my life, as long as in another area, I don't do this. Or the way of Balaam, as long as I'm doing in one area of my life what God wants me to do, it doesn't matter what I do in another, or using and manipulating the ways or the gifts of God for selfish and self-serving purposes. That was the way of Balaam. He didn't love God. He wasn't committed to God. He was gifted by God, but he used that gift to profit himself and to actually go against the ways of God when it would profit him more. That's the way of Balaam. The error of Balaam is that he chose the riches and the things of this world, the gold and the silver and the honor that he would get from Balak over the honor that he would get from God. 
He chose earth. Listen, he chose earth over heaven. That was the error of Balaam. But the doctrine of Balaam, and listen carefully, because what he taught Balak, the doctrine that was creeping into the church of Pergamos, and the doctrine that so easily creeps into a church like ours, is the intermingling of the church and the world. The mixing of God's ideals, God's people, God's ways with the world's ideals, the world's affections, and the world's ways. When the church becomes worldly, when the church intermarries with the world and becomes worldly thing, driven by worldly principles, pursuing worldly things, and yet mixing it with this Christianity, this pseudo-spirituality, that varies to differing degrees, but that is compromised by worldly principles. That's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam, in a sense, is that it is not an offense to God for the church to be entangled with the world. That it's okay for Christians to do worldly things. That the blood of Jesus Christ affords and provides, makes provision for me to live worldly, and I can call it grace. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And it's an affront and an offense to Christ. 1 John 2.15, we read it last week, I'll read it again. That the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And when you begin to mix worldly affections and worldly lusts with spiritual pursuits, it's a recipe for disaster. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. The lust of the eyes is affections and attentions that are drawn by physical things. Corinthians says that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so when our affections are drawn towards the things that are seen, a shiny car, a beautiful house, a stack of cash, a beautiful partner, be it male or female, the lusts of the eyes, it's of the world. The lust of the flesh is to overindulge the senses, to live for sex, or to justify ungodly sexual behavior in some way. It's when we live to eat or to satisfy some appetite that we have physically. It's when we feed and indulge upon chemical addictions, whether it be alcohol or drugs or even medications. The pride of life that John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2 is to be over-concerned with self-image. It's belonging to the world's rating system. It's judging ourselves or others by class or by the type of house or neighborhood that they live in or the type of job or career that they have. It's the pride of life, the elevation and the suppression of one over another as we relate to each other in an earthly basis. It's the pride of life. And all of that, the Bible says, is not of the Father. It is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But he that doeth the will of God will abide forever. And to mix Christianity or the worship of Christ with worldly endeavors, pursuits, and affections is an offense and an affront to God. To marry the two, so to speak, is to embrace and ascribe to the doctrine of Balaam. And Jesus condemns the church in Pergamos, those that adhered to that belief. That it's okay for me to be a Christian and at the same time to live for the world. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, Paul writes and he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, listen to the doctrine of grace, the teaching of grace, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, the doctrine of grace teaches us to deny worldliness. It doesn't teach us to embrace it because we're blood-bought, that the blood of Christ allows and provides for me to live for the world. But rather, it teaches us to deny worldliness. The doctrine of Balaam teaches us that grace allows worldliness and that the cross somehow affords carnal behavior. That Jesus died so that I could live how I want and still go to heaven. But notice what Jesus says he will do in response to those that live this way. Skip with your eyes to verse 16. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a great picture, isn't it? Of what took place with Balaam when he sought to pursue a worldly endeavor against the will of God. Even though God said, fine, go if you're going to go. But it says that God sought to fight against him with the sword. That was in his hand. If you're seeking to live for the world. I'm going to tell you outright church. That right now. The Lord's face is in some way. Against you. In the same way. And listen. God used Balaam after that. Balaam. He wasn't accursed. He wasn't cast off. He wasn't yet in that place. Where he would be condemned. As he would ultimately come into judgment. But at that time where he was with the position of his heart as it was, God was against him. And there are some in this church even right now that though you are saved and though you have been blood bought, yet because of the way you're living your life, the face of God is against you. His sword is drawn in his hand. And he says to you as he says to this church that if you don't repent, I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And you don't want to be in that position. Like Balaam, the Lord said, go, but then stood in the way against him and would have killed him. Let me ask you, have you embraced the doctrine of Balaam? That it's okay to have a divided allegiance? That you're living for the world and you're affectionate towards it? And perhaps you've seen the Lord with the sword in his hand somewhere in front of you. And you know that you're running out of room. The sword of the Lord says this to you tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. The sword of the Lord says to you tonight, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So that these two are contrary, the one to another. And then in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I has also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Has your belief corrupted your behavior? And thus your 
behavior is compromised. Well, next, and we are getting close to our close. He says again in verse 15, So hast thou also (coughs) them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Not only the doctrine of Balaam, but the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, what was this? Most scholars agree that what this is, is that the word in and of itself lends to the meaning of this doctrine. The word Nico means to conquer or to rule, and the word laity, which is the people or the congregation. So the Nicolaitans were those that ruled over the congregation. The idea was that of establishing a priesthood or an order wherein people would access God through a priest or through a mediator of someone other than just simply going to Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to go to God, you needed to go to the priest. You needed to bring a sacrifice and you need to follow the prescribed method of accessing God's you know, presence or approval. But when Jesus hung upon the cross, the Bible says that the veil was torn in two from top to bottom and that the way was opened and that now access is granted to anyone who comes to God by faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that there is one mediator between God and men and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And any time a person or a priest or a pastor or a prophet says that you need them, or you need them to pray for you, or you need your hands, their hands laid upon you, or, or you need you know, to put on their shower cap, or, or whatever it is, you need to give to their ministry if you want God. Anytime you hear any of that, it's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says he hates it. One of two times in the New Testament that he uses the word hate, and they are both associated with the Nicolaitans. He says he hates it. God hates it, when men put a stumbling block in front of other men to keep them from coming to him. Because the good news is that the gospel affords us access to Christ. And anytime that access is boarded up or gated, if you would, so that you have to jump through a hoop or come through a man or through a system or a hierarchy, woo woe unto the man who set up that gate. Or that stumbling block. Jesus hates that. But he see that it was a stumbling block in the church in Pergamos. That there was a hierarchy developing. A separation between the leaders and the members. Man stepped into God's place. And Jesus said, I hate that. Well, in verse 16, he gives his corrective exhortation. He says, repent. What's the solution? When these things happen, repent, Jesus says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. To repent means to change direction. The problem that they were facing was rooted in a departure from sound doctrine. A failure to adhere to the exactness of the message and to compromise it and to make it something it wasn't. So therefore to repent is to return to the root of what's wholesome and right. Get back to the Bible. That's how you repent when you find yourself in that position. Return to the Word. The situation was that they were planted in an area where it was hard to be a Christian, remember? And that that led to compromise. And that the correction that Jesus gives to them is not move away and find an easier place to be a Christian. Don't leave the church and just try to do it on your own in isolation. 
but rather return to the Word of God. Go back to the Bible and redefine and reestablish the core of what it means to be a Christian. Stop listening to the doctrines of men and everything that they put forth and just sit down with the Word of God, the Bible, and read it and believe it and do it again. Let your foundation be laid in truth. Stop compromising with the world and the flesh and start living for Christ again. Don't let the culture and the status quo of what the churches are doing or what the other Christians are doing set the definition for what it means to be a Christian in your heart because who knows if what they're doing is right and real. But rather get to the exactness of what God's will is within the word of God and begin to lay that upon your heart afresh and return again to the pure doctrine of what it means to follow Christ and to know Christ personally. Get into it. Reestablish regular Bible reading. Make Bible study a priority within your life. I mean, there's opportunities here like you wouldn't believe. Ladies' fellowships in the morning, in the evening, men's fellowships throughout the week, Bible studies that are taking place in houses here at the church. There's plenty of seats, places. Get into the Word. Reestablish the priority. We were talking with a couple, my wife and I, the other night, and they asked me, and they said, well, how do you know so much about the Bible? And I said, well, basically, I just listened to the Bible. There was a whole period throughout probably the first half of my 20s when all I did was listen to Bible teachings all day long. And, 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 you know, I told them the things that I listened to. And and I got a phone call two days later from the, 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 the male end of this couple. And he said, hey, you know, I did what you said. He said, I listened to the first teaching in, in, in you know, that particular set, you know, of through the Bible teachings that you listened. He said, it was unbelievable. He said, you know, me and my wife, we talked about it. We're going to start listening to these at night. Instead of watching TV and, and giving into entertainment and, and, and empty amusement, we're going to start listening to the Word of God together. We're going to go through this together. And as he said it, I, I just couldn't even express the elation that I had within my heart because I was, I'm, I'm sitting here going, you have no idea how good things are about to get for you. You have no idea the fruit that is going to come from that declaration that you just made that I'm going to give myself to the word and to the study of the word and allow the pureness of the word to reestablish my faith in Jesus Christ. And my exhortation to you and the Bible's exhortation, Jesus' exhortation to you is get back to the Bible. Get back into the word of God. Make it a priority. Get into hermeneutics. Dig out of the word. Find the substance. Search for hidden truth. Make it your affection in your life because what you'll discover is that there's something here that's more precious than the daily food that you eat. The Word of God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17 will be the fruit of their repentance. Real quick and then we're finished. Three things that Jesus says will happen to them if they take His counsel and repent and get back to the Word. First of all, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. The manna, again, one of those hermeneutical symbols that keeps popping up in Scripture. This manna. What is it? Jesus tells us what it is. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And linked with that, he also said, give us this day our daily bread. 
the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The symbol, it's another symbol of the Bible. And listen to what he's saying to us. If you'll do it, if you'll say it, if you'll mean it, if you'll get back to the Bible and give yourself to a study of it, what you'll find first, Jesus says, I will give you the hidden manna. I'm going to show you great and wonderful things that you know not. You'll begin to see layers of truth and gems and jewels, diamonds of spiritual substance that you never knew were there. Things that will add abundantly to your life and to your faith and that will change you forever. I'm going to show you the hidden manna. If you take heed to my counsel, you'll see the symbols, the pictures, the lessons, the secrets. The second thing he says is that he will give them a white stone. The white stone was most likely in Old Testament symbolism, it was a picture in the Urim and the Thummim, that is, the stones upon the breastplate of the high priest that would be, listen, to give direction to the people of God. They would seek the Urim and the Thummim when they didn't know what to do, and the white stone would light up and give affirmative answer, and the black stone would flash when there was to be a negative answer. But the white stone in the Urim is a symbol of direction. And listen, if you give yourself to the study of the Bible, I promise you this, you will be one that has direction in your life. That you will be led by the Lord. Thy word, Psalm 119, verse 105, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And when you give yourself to the word of God, you're going to have direction. You're going to have the white stone. And notice thirdly, he says that in that white stone, there will be a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, in the Old Testament times, the name of a person was given to them by their parents, and it was to be a proclamation of who they would become. Jacob, heel catcher, conniver, that's who he is. The name would be a symbol of the nature. And listen, let me tell you right now, if you give yourself to a study of the Bible, that you're a person of the word, Jesus is going to give you a new nature. Christ is going to be formed in you. There'll be a new nature, a new name, if you would, given to you that only God knows. He'll begin to form a character within you. Something of substance that you don't know where it came from. No one else recognizes its source, perhaps, but you know that it's Christ in you. That it's a byproduct of the Word of God stirring and working and performing its power upon your life. In a new name, a new nature will be given to you. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. No man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So in returning to the Word, there's going to be discovery of hidden truth and who he is. There's going to be direction and discernment for your life and your path. And there's going to be renewal in your mind and in your person. And as we close and the worship team can come, I know we went long. Thank you for your patience. I wonder if there's anyone here that you sense that tonight Jesus is speaking to you personally. That somewhere along the way, maybe something caught your attention or grabbed your affection and your allegiance to Christ was maybe divided. The exactness of the doctrine and the narrowness of the way gave way to a dividing of the paths. And somewhere along the way, it became obscure. There was an area or areas of compromise that came into your life. 
The word of God began to dry up and it seemed that maybe you would read but it, nothing would go in. And, and, and what used to be a, a time of substance for some reason has become a time of dryness. Your path has become obscured. Your goals seem somewhat foggy and darkened. And you know that tonight as you listen to the word of God and you hear the counsel of Christ given to this church of Pergamos, that what he says to them, he says to you, repent. That you need to repent. That you need to turn back. Repent means to turn back. To to go back to the Bible. To humble yourself before God. And ask Him to revive you. To give you again that thirst for His Word. And that priority upon Him. And my prayer is that as we sing this last song. As we stand up together. That if that's you. That you just lift up your hands as we sing to the Lord. And say, Lord, that's me. Help me. Revive me. Change me. Fill me again with those things of substance. And Lord, may I never be found as one who subscribes to this doctrine of Balaam, living worldly and justifying it by the cross and the blood. But may I live completely for you. May God give us wisdom. Let's all stand.